I'm Michael Hunt. I'm Director of Trans Technology Research at the University of Plymouth and also <laughs> the editor of LRQ and in an editorial for LRQ 2.01, we thought we'd just have a conversation about science and the sublime and the idea of the sublime was really triggered by a sort of rereading and a cross-grained reading of interventions on deep history, that is, addressing key questions such as when do we begin history, when do we think the history of human beings begins and what are conditions necessary for that. So I invited Roger Sundar Martin to contribute this short essay on deep history, the sublime and science, and for Leonardo Quarterly Reviews 2.01, largely, uh, as, as I say, triggered by reading around deep history and of course Sundar's new book, What is Science, which uh, is featured in that review. So the question seemed to be, what is the connection between science and the idea of the sublime? Could there be a connection? And it, could that connection be more fully understood or understood in different ways now that there's this rather interesting discussion going on about what is history and how deep do we go back in time before we think history stops. So that's the sort of rough background to what we were doing. And what it brought out, it seemed to me, was the key concerns that each of the contributors had. And I wonder if the way to go forward is just to go around the table, as it were, and ask first Roger, then Sundar, and then Martin to talk about the key issue that they felt that uh, they brought out or wanted to bring out in their editorial contribution. This is Roger Molina. I'm an astrophysicist uh, originally by training and, and profession, but recently I've taken a position here at the University of Texas, Dallas, where I have a position both in the Department of Physics and in Arts and Humanities. And so I'm particularly interested in some of the discussions going on today which link uh, the mo motivations of people in the sciences and the people uh, in the arts and humanities. I got interested in this topic in recently reading an essay that Sundar had written on the ethics of curiosity, which got me more interested in these motivational issues. And so the, the question of the sublime has not been discussed very much in, in our circles in recent years, and I think is an interesting one. It basically, from my point of view, begins with the question of the understandability or the comprehensibility of the world. Uh, and of course, within science, we have a, a very confident approach that we can build descriptions of the world that make sense, that, that have predictive power and so on. On the other hand, the way science is done, we're always at the limit of that comprehensibility. And so I think the concept of, of the sublime may be a useful discussion between the arts and sciences today. And I really look forward uh, to this conversation. My name is Sundar Sarukai. I'm right now at the Manipal Center for Philosophy and Humanities at Manipal University in India. I must uh, mention here that my own interest in the sublime arose when I first did a piece for the Leonardo Almanac. And it arose from a very interesting uh, context because I was trying to understand a very unique phenomenon which happens in Indian society, which is that when people offer prayers to machines like cars and buses and so on. In fact, the space research organization, scientists of the space research organization, offer worship to models of satellites and rockets before launch. And at one level, people would react to it saying, you know, scientists are superstitious and it's a mix of religion and science. But to me, there seems to be a deeper issue here, 
why would somebody do something like this when it seems at the outward apparently on the outside something which seems very so called irrational and the way i try to understand it is by invoking the idea of the sublime in order to say that there is a kind of a relationship with technology which uh, we in indian society still find very difficult to get hold of so technology in the largest sense is always unpresentable and ungraspable by us and therefore doing these kinds of cultural acts and technology we try and bring it into our lives now then when roger got back to me about this idea of the sublime then i went and thought back to the larger question of science and the sublime and what is so special to science and its relationship to the sublime because as i think roger correctly said uh, that brings the bring science and art together in some a completely different trajectory the both of them searching for the unpresentable the incomprehensible as it were and i think this point about the comprehensibility which roger mentioned just now is actually a very important clue for me because on the one hand traditional philosophical accounts of the sublime goes back to the point of unpresentability or the inability to conceptualize something although you have a grasp of what it is now on the other hand science seems to function as if that scientists have a great measure of comprehensibility of the world as if they understand the world and understand the complexity of their discourse about the world and to me this is where the inherent tension in science and the sublime lies because i really don't understand what the nature of comprehensibility of the world is what is the scientific nature of the comprehensibility when we talk about science and for example in the first lessons in quantum mechanics when we talk of the wave particle duality now we seem to think that there is a kind of a comprehensibility because all of us know about the equations for it the experiments for it and so on but what is the nature of this comprehensibility what is the nature of the comprehensibility for students of science as well as a scientist in other words there seems to be a more facile way of talking about it without really understanding it and i think that possibility which rests in science that you can actually talk about it as if you understand it but not really seemingly understand the foundations of it to me really captures a sublime in some of the most fundamental aspects of science and it's something which i think both michael and martin keep repeatedly come back to their in their own uh, write up on the science and the sublime and the, the idea of the sublime the one example which i have used in my own short piece was about the imaginary number i mean among other things in science for example everybody knows what to do with imaginary numbers you know what kind of manipulations to do right from school but what really is the imaginary number what is our comprehensibility of the imaginary number and i think the other wonderful phrase george used the limits of comprehensibility it almost gives us the entry into the domain of the sublime because what what i'm trying to suggest is whether it's of the wave particle duality or of complex numbers or of any number of such ideas in science there is seemingly a notion of comprehensibility but we are able to function with it very effectively without actually understanding it and that to me is the great mystery of science Thank you. Yeah. Martin. Hello, I'm uh, Martin Woodward from uh, University of Plymouth with Trans Technology Research. My editorial was a response really to the level three. And my interest is within the visual arts and the immaterial dimensions of audiovisual artifacts. My editorial really picked up on the question of the status of human-made artifacts when we recognize the immaterial as co-constitutive of material culture. 
and what places the sublime would play within such a framework. So in, in response to uh, the ideas brought up for the other three editorials, the, the feeling of something more or the infinitely unknown or being part of something which is much bigger um, could be seen as a sensitivity to the presence of multiple dimensions of reality, not as a transcendental unknown in a Kantian sense, uh, but as a partiality or an incompleteness of a reality which is manifest or co-constituted through the addition of the metaphysical dimensions of the observer or the inquirer. I thought that this was an interesting topic worth opening up on two counts. The first of all, I thought that the discussion of deep history that was beginning to open up was both fascinating, uh, seductive and problematic. And it was fascinating in that it challenged the way in which history was getting shorter and shorter and shorter, uh, where it should have been getting longer and longer and longer. And it more or less um, corresponds to its own length of presence in the university, about you know, 180, 190 years as, as a discrete discipline. And if history is uh, there to tell us stories about the present, um, what really was deep history trying to say and the seduction was that it opened up a new and unknowable vista but at the same time it, it, the danger seemed to me that it was proposing a materialism that I found a bit difficult to live with and I suppose the relief from that came to me from seeing deep history as a way of seeing the past in, in which objects and consciousness were co-connected, that there was no separate brain, no separate human, if we begin to think through objects and know through objects, then those objects are part of our knowing. So that allowed me to open up an immaterial version of what was being proposed. And the second strand that I found fascinating, because of my own previous research in the histories of the 19th century in science and how it was understood, was the fact that at a certain moment, the distinction between science and what we now call parascience, or science and parapsychology, or whatever term you want to use, but the spiritual, wasn't thought to be as profound as it is now. In fact, Roger Luckhurst is very precise in dating the split in England between science and parascience, or uh, parapsychology, uh, around the trial of uh, Henry Slade, which is the 1870s. Up until that time, the unknowable as, as an unknowable was incorporated as part of the scientific province. And um, it's bracketing, and I think probably parking in the arts, uh, was really a way of dealing with an overload of information. We tend to think of big data as being a contemporary problem. It's simply not. It's just another way of telling it. So in the 19th century, what I began to see was that science parked a lot of its questions, which led directly to the sublime in the arts, in order to pick them up again. And I'm wondering whether you know, this is a moment where we can invite scientists to recover their own history and begin to take on questions and topics which may not immediately be able to describe the world in comfortable ways. And I mean, the last thing I say is that uh, I think the science perhaps might need to fully recognise that the self that undertakes scientific research cannot really be fully defined in scientific ways. And so it was those two vectors that I thought were quite interesting to throw into the pot and to see what sort of discussion emerged and whether where the traction was. So 
I think coming back to this deep history topic, I guess what it struck me in the discussions was that indeed one of the things that we do to try and make sense of the world is we create objects outside of ourselves. And, that, and that's something that both artists and scientists do as sort of a strategy for, for understanding the comprehensibility of the world. And so in, in the case of, of scientists, there are two kinds of objects that we create outside of ourselves in this process. One, one is the creation of mathematical symbolic structures, which in a platonic sense, and, and I think Sundar is quite right, we don't seek to capture the real, but get close enough to it that it's somehow comprehensible. And of course, this is a very deep mystery of, of why mathematics it has been a, such a, a fertile way uh, of creating these sort of structures outside of ourselves that, that help us understand the world. The point that then I, I, I wanted to add to this was that the other thing that scientists do is that they create instruments. And I, and I think uh, that this comes back to a point that Michael made in his editorial about thinking through objects rather than thinking about objects. And indeed, if you, in the deep history context, uh, it's that whole process uh, of object making in, in all of human history very little of which has been, of course, recorded, which is, is really the trace uh, of, of our struggle to, to make sense of the world around us. And I'm quite comfortable uh, with Michael's challenge that, in fact, today, uh, even though within the scientific ethos, there's a rather well-defined boundary between science and, and parascience, it's kind of a, a moving frontier. And so I, I think it, that this question of the sublime is, is actually a good concept uh, to, to focus on this, this boundary, this moving boundary of comprehensibility, but also between science and, and, and parascience. So maybe Sundar, you could pick it up. Yeah, um, I'm glad you raised this question of the objects, and I think I picked that up also from uh, Michael's short summary from his editorial. Because uh, to me, this question of how science engages with objects, uh, as Roger correctly said, actually defines the nature of science. And I just want to point out to one specific way in which it uses language actually to modify its understanding of objects. And it happens with Newton. And uh, this is a process which I'm sure many of us uh, know, uh, uh, which is called nominalism. When uh, Newton rewrites the English of his texts, uh, rewrite the English so that you replace adjectives and verbs with noun terms. And science after, and it, you can see it uh, clearly, for example, in his optics. And after this process, what linguists have called as nominalization, that is, uh, when you use, when you replace adjectives with, uh, with nouns, what you're doing is you're replacing descriptions of processes with that of objects. Scientific writing completely becomes a description of objects because in some sense, it seems to suggest this particular strategy of writing, which is so integral to science, post-Newton, seems to suggest that Science inherently has a problem dealing with processual, you know, descriptions rather than noun-like descriptions. So it is easier to describe the world in terms of objects. And as we know in philosophy with Whitehead's process philosophy, etc., there seemingly ways to attack this problem, but uh, it has not taken off at all. So this question about objects actually raised to me, therefore, two fundamental questions. And I think, as Roger said, we are already, science already has to encounter two different, entirely different kinds of objects. One is the mathematical entities, which are not like physical objects, and the other is the objects related to this uh, instrumental world. Now, 
the thing which connects for me very fundamental ideas of philosophy and therefore the sublime through philosophy and these ideas about objects comes from uh, michael's point about thinking through object and not about objects because i am reminded of a wonderful description of metaphysics by the very well known french philosopher henry bergson when he is trying to tell us what it means to think about objects so on the one hand you have objects and you describe them from outside it talk about various properties go around perspectives and tell how the object is and the other is to inhabit the objects from inside so as it were live the object in some fundamental sense to bergson the spirit of metaphysics lies at the, in that possibility that you actually inhabit the object which you then describe from internally not through this perspectives and properties of the outside i think that notion of engagement is what really allows us to uh, you know even address the question of the sublime so i'm saying this because um, this is another way of reflecting on the sublime without reducing sublime to almost any scientific act because if you talk about uh, you know sublime just in terms of this unpresentability and the difficulty of conceptualization etc there are probably many ideas and many processes within science which may fall under that but this idea of this objects you know which both roger and michael are just talking about now allows me to actually ask a question how do you actually inhabit an object in order to live it in this fundamental metaphysical sense and i think there it raises fundamentally new different questions about how to understand the sublime we survey this question of objects in science can we inhabit mathematical entities in any fundamental sense like we could inhabit uh, you know physical entities and i think the closest answer and I, and there is a very interesting connection to what martin talks about when his own uh, points about vitalism and uh, this whole point about human made the multiple levels of reality and materialism you know i think the question of vitalism which he has not touched on but you know which is there at the background of much of what he's talking about and how materials start getting inhabiting certain characteristics and i think you can also see that in michael's point when he talks about the relationship between the scientific and psychical in the early uh, you know in the 19th he said 19th century britain and that these notions is i think to me where one entry into the sublime is possible i i just need to clear something up and that is that um, the distinction uh, the insistence on uh, thinking through objects it comes from of course Shriok and Smale in their book uh, Deep History, mm-hmm. and the way in which I've chosen to pick up that idea is I, it may not exactly coincide with theirs, but that is to link the, the link between human consciousness. If you take the view that, as they do in their earlier book, that the logical place to start the history of humans is when humans are able to make decisions, even before maybe they have language or even illustrative skills. but they are making conscious decisions then that seems to foreground human consciousness in what Roger talks about as the world outside us and that presents a, a sort of fascinating paradox and i like the way Roger tells that story about how science is about understanding the world outside us but i actually think it's as much to do with understanding ourselves through the world outside us rather than understanding the world outside us as an object in itself that that you know, you have to ask why would you want to understand the world outside and so i think that that's the first point i like to make and the second is that i think the the question of instruments is really absolutely fascinating as uh, because they are both 
objects and theories, and they exist according to some prior preconception of what they will find. And thinking through instruments, I think, is a fascinating way to get a connection between the sublime as it's understood in the arts and, and the sublime as it's absolutely, in my view, embedded in the sciences. I'd just like to add something to um, Sindar's and Michael's comments. Sindar's picking up on the vitalism inherent within my uh, editorial is correct, and Bergson really is someone who can uh, facilitate this kind of discussion quite well. Another consequence of this thinking emerging at this time is a question of materiality, and uh, specifically within the humanities, we're seeing a shift away from the cultural turn of the 70s, which was a turn which privileged language as a way of understanding material culture, and as a consequence, uh, neglected matter and materiality of material culture. Uh, we're now seeing a resurgence of the, of the notions of materiality. I think the sublime really could uh, add a further dimension to this materiality, which would bring back a, a question of materiality uh, with regard to scientific instrumentation. And this materiality doesn't just extend to the material world and the matter of the instruments itself, but also extends to the human inquirer, which, as Michael pointed out, foregrounds uh, the desire or uh, the, the intention behind the inquiry, which produces the scientific instrumentations in the first place. So, I, you know, I think one of the other topics that circulated in our various editorials was this, this question of the, of the unknowable, and that indeed... The sublime is sort of embedded in this idea uh, that, that maybe there are some things that are just fundamentally unknowable. Mm -hmm. and, and I try to break those down into a few different subcategories where indeed science is quite happy to live and function with certain unknowables. And, and obviously in quantum mechanics, uh, we're faced with uh, that, that kind of way of describing uh, certain processes and, and objects. The question of unpresentability is, is, is slightly different, and that obviously gets into the issue of mathematics. I think one, one of the interesting things is that, that people often have this idea of, of, of mathematics as a fixed corpus of symbolic structures, when in fact mathematics itself is a construction that evolves with human activity. And so the unpresentable uh, actually is also an evolving frontier and a good example of that would be now the way that in the science of complexity, we have ways of describing things which 100 years ago were just undescribable and hence unpresentable. Let me just pass that along to Sundar because I think you explored a few of these issues also. Yeah, so I think this idea of the unpresentable, etc., uh, you know, in related terms, we do find the uh, overlap with certain philosophical ideas like the Kantian sublime and so on. So that seemed like an important point of overlap between science and philosophical and artistic understanding of the sublime. But I think uh, maybe we could relook at this a little bit more carefully and ask the question of what is unpresentable in science and what is unpresentable in art. Are they both the same kind of unpresentables? The reason I'm saying this is because I'm reminded of another major debate in religion, for example. And there debates between different religious traditions on whether a religious expression and a religious experience can ever be described. So as we all know, that, that distinction is captured in the distinction between affability and ineffability. 
and uh, for those who believe that uh, certain certain experiences it could be religious mystical and so on when they say that's ineffable that what they are basically saying is that they can't describe it and they would rather prefer to experience it or be in silence and so on now why is it that ineffability does not arise at all in science you will whatever the complexity of the problem whatever the inherent contradictions in the formulation of a problem ineffability that is the incapacity to describe it it is equivalent to a scientist saying this problem is so complex i don't want to talk about it i only think about it or experience it or whatever the reason why ineffability is not part of scientific descriptions is because i think this science's engagement with unpresentability is so fundamental to the very definition of science because in principle it says nothing is unpresentable to me and we will find ways to express it however incomplete it may be and i think there there is a very important tension between the ideas of the sublime which arises uh, in you know arts uh, religion and uh, scientific experience so uh, the connection with unpresentability and unknowability therefore raises a much larger question which again comes back to objects and so i'm glad that Uh, Roger earlier made this thing about uh, instruments and the relationship with objects and instruments because eventually what is it that is really made present to us and for the human cognition all said and done we still our cognition still works at the level of objects because we can't cognize relationships and mathematical entities are ma- mathematics is fundamentally a discourse of relations so unpresentability in science what does it actually reduce to i mean to me that is a very important question and i i i'm still grappling with trying to understand what it means in the context of the sublime but i'm just placing this question back to you in asking uh, basically what is so different from the notion of unpresentability in science as an art rather than just saying they are the same in both these domains so i'm just no, throwing okay. back that question to see if you can develop on that Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think it's absolutely fundamental question, and I mean, it's brilliant the way you put it. And of course, it would be wrong to suggest they are the same, but there's certain there's, there's a certain similarity that I think could be pulled out about the presentability in art, science, and religion, and that is that unknowability is a category in all those um, aspects of practice and inquiry. What the, the paradox or the problem is. that I think you pulled out very eloquently with science, is that it lacks an expressive vehicle. Uh, you can't really say where the unknowable is. It's probably, there is the ineffable. We have the ineffable in um, religion and sometimes in art, but as you say, never in science. But it's really just sort of stalking horse. It parks the word somewhere else. We have somebody here, Rita Cachao, who's working on a really interesting top project to do with space, and her argument seems to be that the way we talk about space is complicated because we park into the idea of space that all that's unknowable so we get a, we get this curious paradox that the unknowable which is huge seems to be a category on its own that's parked in subcategories which are much smaller so you've got sort of 10 liters in a 1 liter pot which is a bit peculiar and i think it's in that sort of paradox and contradiction that the sublime is sensed and calls for articulation and uh, the more that there's an acknowledgement in the sciences that Roger has, has already identified that there is more unknowables than knowables and the scientific enterprise is extremely modest and limited practice 
which will tell us some things about ourselves but can never tell us everything about ourselves, then I think with this paradox of the relation between the unknowable being parked in something that's much smaller than it is then produces this idea that the sublime might be a way of finding another thing out about ourselves, and that is how we are actually driven by and motivated by that which is unknown and unknowable, never knowable, and not by what's known or what we could possibly know. And I think that's the, that's the sort of commonality of the unknowability and effability or, and the sublime in science, art, and religion, and the spiritual. So I think that's a really uh, fascinating line through it. It's uh, very great we bring it up. So um, this notion of there being more known than unknown, Roger, I know you've talked about before, has particular significance in astrophysics. Do you just want to pick that? I remember you talking yeah, about Yeah, obviously, um, I, I've discussed a little bit, and, and I think your, 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 your comment about how space has become a vehicle for parking uh, certain unknowns is particular, particularly true in astrophysics right now, where, of course, there, there are two uh, dilemmas. Uh, one is that by, by looking at the behavior of material objects, uh, it's clear there's a lot of unseen matter uh, that exists, that, that exerts gravity. In total ignorance, we call this dark matter, and there are a number of theories of what this dark matter might, might consist of. But then beyond that, uh, because the, the data that cosmologists have indicate that the universe uh, as we know it is expanding, and that expansion is accelerating, uh, there seems to be some other form of energy um, in space, uh, currently called dark energy, also in, in total ignorance. And so I think astronomers are confronted with a, a particular situation where we have the instruments to look at uh, material, what's called bosonic matter, stars, galaxies, planets, and so on, but indeed, uh, 97% of the energy and matter content of the universe is currently of an, of an unknown form. And yet, you know, what's ironic is that, that scientists are not destabilized by that situation. And, and that comes back to, to Sundar's point. So it's, it's not so much that there are more unknowns than knowns, but that indeed scientists are quite comfortable with uh, the, this kind of temporary and evolutionary description, which indeed in that process discovers additional unknowns. And to some extent, that makes, I think, scientists in some senses quite mystical. I'll just make a very brief final comment uh, responding to what Roger said, because I think this is the dilemma I'm in and which many people in art science would be because the functions of science and art seem to be very different. And if science is about knowing whatever the complexity of the world, the, you know, the ineffability of the world, but art, unless it wants to present itself as creating knowledge about something, it may not be about the world, then they are actually at two different planes. So the notion of the unknowable becomes very different in art because it says I'm not interested in knowing. In principle, art is the unknowable. It's not about content of the unknowable. So given this, a dilemma between one rejecting the notion of knowing something but replacing it with experience, for example, you know, that's just one part of it. Then where does the question of the sublime lie in common between art and science? And I think that tension itself illustrates to me something very interesting about the sublime, which I'm not able to articulate now, but I think this is a discussion which probably the discussion today has raised questions which, you know, some of us could develop further on this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sundar. Martin, do you Thank just want to... Sure, I, have a, um, I get a sense, um, the idea of the unknowable and the 
and representable as as understood through the sublime in taking the the traditional Kantian position that the sublime is um, a transcendental uh, way of accessing knowledge or uh, transcendental a transcendental knowledge that we don't have access to. I wonder if in the current landscape of the shift to uh, resurgence of interest in matter and materiality would suggest that looking at art and science in terms of an epistemological uh, status would need a shift to a discussion of the ontological and that maybe there's a discussion to be had between the arts and science which could involve the sublime on ontological terms rather than uh, purely epistemological ones. Thank you all for your contribution and it sort of begs the question really as to why this discussion would come up in the context of Leonardo um, but of course Leonardo was founded by somebody whose scientific enterprise was to do with with really penetrating the deepest of unknowns and found that art was as valuable a vehicle for doing that as was his scientific practice and that was of course the founder of Leonardo and it's probably worth pointing out that this new adventure into the unknown of what might be the future of, of uh, academic and, and investigative publishing is part of the Leonardo project which uh, Roger now Roger Molina now leads as executive editor and Leonardo Reviews as a subset of that enterprise has been running for about um, 20 years now reviewing the latest material where we can genuinely talk about a crossover between arts and the humanities, sciences and technologies. And this new venture meets two of the imperatives of the Leonardo project, which is to investigate new ways of bringing these discussions in front of new audiences. And in collaboration with uh, MIT Press, we're producing a series of e-journals, e-books, this one is LRQ 2.01. We hope there's going to be LRQ more 2.02, in similar form in which burning issues of the community are brought out immediately in front of that community along with substantial reviews of the literature which have informed the questions. And so we're very grateful, to, I'm very personally very grateful to a Leonardo for allowing me to do this and I'm grateful to MIT Press for giving us an opportunity to experiment with new publishing and distribution conduits that might actually widen the debate to include disciplines hitherto unknown to us. So thank you. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information about Leonardo or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.